Welcome to The Rock's Podcast. The book of Joshua gives the account of how God led His people into the Promised Land. Though they continued to display a lack of faith in God, He remained faithful to the promise He made to Abraham and his descendants. Let's join Pastor Ross now as he guides us through the book of Joshua. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your love and thank You for Your presence here. Thank You, Father, that we study a a living Word, God-breathed, does not have its origin in man, but has come God-breathed into our hearts to make us alive, to correct us, to, to challenge us, to show us the straight and narrow path that leads to life. So we thank you, Father. We, we surrender to your will and to what, the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The disciples asked Jesus how the world was going to end. And our Lord described to his disciples, as recorded in Matthew 24, where I'd like you to turn, actually, Matthew 24. Sorry about that. Because I'm going to do a little bit of reading out of Matthew 24 about the end of the world, because as we have been studying... The conquest of Canaan is really a microcosm, just a miniature uh, scenario encapsulating the truth of a much larger and grander scale end of the world. And so as Israel is moving into the promised land and conquering uh, Canaan, so too we see truths about the true conquest of the of the world of godless sinners and Jesus Christ as the true Yeshua or Joshua coming to reign and to rule on this earth. And so what I'd like to do is kind of set up tonight's passage of Joshua 11 by looking at Jesus, the true Joshua's description of the true conquest of the world at the end time when he comes back, picking up in verse 15. So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his coat. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation or distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, the chosen, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the desert, don't go out. Here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather immediately after the distress of those days. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time... The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. 
Now, let's just pause right there. The Son of Man, a title, as we've mentioned before, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. 500 years before Jesus was born, Daniel, young man of God, had a vision of Jesus coming in the clouds of glory and said, wow, I see a Son of Man, a human being, glorified, coming through the clouds. He called him the Son of Man, being wowed that he looked like a man, like one of us. So that was the term in the Old Testament for the Messiah coming through the clouds of glory. And Jesus' favorite self-designation of himself was the Son of Man. So he says, at that time, you will see the Son of Man, the Son of God, will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. I tell you the truth. This generation that is experiencing the tribulation, that is going through what I'm talking about, this generation will not certainly pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I added that explanation there because obviously he wasn't talking about this generation because the Son of God, God did not appear in the clouds with great glory. He's saying to those who will read this at the end, he's saying, have hope. It will be in your lifetime. In fact, it will be just merely three and a half more years, and the Son of Man would be coming through the clouds with great glory. Now, I'm going to do something crazy. I'm going to explain this to you before we get into Joshua 11. Joshua 11 will go a lot easier when you understand the horrific scene that Joshua 11 is prefiguring. Joshua 10 and 11 is trying to get you ready for, for the fulfillment of the age. Paul the Apostle, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, says that these things... We're happening to paint a picture for us upon whom the fulfillment of the age has come. And so if you understand what Jesus is describing here, then you're not going to get all bent out of shape about the bloodshed and the tremendous grief and the, the tremendous judgment and wrath that falls on these, uh, these Canaanites who represent the end of the world where people will not repent of their uh, sexual immorality, their unbelief, their magic arts, and all of their other sinning. And so uh, let's, let's take a look at this really quick. Number one, Jesus is describing what is called the Great Tribulation. The, what, how we get that name is from verse 21. Jesus calls it the great tribulation. The NIV has distress, but it's tribulation. That's where it gets its name. It's a seven-year period, the last seven years of human history as we know it, as is written there in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. We know that it's a seven-year period before Jesus comes to judge the godless of this world and returns to rule and reign. Now, number two, notice that Jesus is speaking to Jews. He's speaking to Jews because the church will not be here. The church will be caught away in what is called the rapture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, it says that we were not appointed to suffer wrath, But the Lord Jesus will rescue his people from the wrath to come, which never means hell, always in context of the great tribulation. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, it says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel. Then we who are alive and remain at his coming shall be caught up and taken 
away, out of harm's way. When we are removed, the seven years starts ticking. Three and a half uneventful. And then the great tribulation begins with what Jesus picks up here in verse 15 and says, okay, when you see the abomination of desolation, know that all hell is going to break loose. And he's speaking to the Jews and the, the Jewish converts who believe on him him during that time. Now, the abomination that causes desolation really quickly, it's from Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And here's what it means. He's saying that three and a half years into the tribulation, there's going to be an abomination, which means a detestable thing, shakuts in the Hebrew. So he's saying There's going to be this detestable thing, Daniel's saying, that causes desolation or causes shamam in the Hebrew, which means causes shock and horror. So Daniel's prophesying that an antichrist is going to go into the temple and do something detestable that causes shock. And Jesus says, when you see that, know that you've got three and a half years left. Revelation chapter 13 says 42 months remain that the Antichrist will reign. Well, what does he do that's detestable, that causes horror and shock? He sets himself up in the temple as God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. Revelation 13 through 14, talk about him setting up an image to be worshipped. Whoever does not worship that image that he causes to speak, he gives life to the image, and it speaks in the temple. And that's the abomination of desolation that Daniel predicted 500 years before. And Jesus is saying, when you see that happen, When he goes in and proclaims himself God, all hell breaks loose. And what do you have from there? You have 42 months remaining. And Jesus is saying, don't worry. This generation that's going through that, your generation, to those who are suffering, will not pass away. It won't be 40 more years of that kind of trauma on the earth. And so it says, he, the beast, will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. When that happens, boom, revelation. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. So you've got the four horsemen that appear. The white horse the Antichrist, the red horse, war, the black horse, famine, the pale horse, death, and the judgments, mountains falling into the sea, blood and hail. It says 100 pounds, I'm quoting Revelation, 100 pound hailstones coming down, the wrath of God no longer mitigated by the gospel call to come, even though even in those days they could repent and turn to him. But the end of the world with all of those plagues that we've been seeing in miniature form in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 11, I should say culminating there. And when you see that, you know that the end of the world, as Jesus predicts, will be... A 9-11 Katrina earthquake at Fukushima and tsunami in Thailand and World War One and Two all wrapped up in one. Jesus said, never before and never again. And if God didn't shorten the time, not one person would survive. Now, know this. That God wills that none perish, and he takes delight not in one death of any wicked person. He wills that all will come to him, and he was willing to pour out that kind of wrath on himself in the form of Jesus, the second person of the Godhead. But for those who say, we will not come to you, we will not bow, 
We don't need your grace. We want to uh, resist you. There's no mercy for that. And God in his goodness and love will have to annihilate evil and evildoers who cling to evil. He's judging the evil. And if you want to cling to the evil, you're going to get thrown in where evil goes as well. But he says, oh, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God would pour out his wrath upon him and nail him to a cross and have him beat so bad. It says in the Bible, you couldn't recognize him as a human being. That's how much he said, look, I'll absorb the wrath of God for you. That all you have to do is have a change of heart and you'll be saved from that kind of wrath. Shielded by simple faith as his child. And then he says, I'll take you away. As I took Lot away, I brought Lot up and out. Then the judgment comes. We are a type of Lot. Lot is a type of last day church. And just as the angel said to Lot, you need to move fast because I can't do a thing until you are safely removed. And that's the way it's going to be with God's church. When everybody's saying peace and safety and everything's cool and they're having wedding parties and they're getting married and all of this, boom, one second, we're gone. Three and a half good years and then the great tribulation. And whoever takes the mark of the beast will perish, as the Bible says. But God says, look, I'd really much rather have it if you just come to me and I'll change you from a creature of wrath to a creature beloved of God. And so now we're going to take a look at the conquest of Canaan, which is kind of like Disneyland now. <laughs> I mean, as compared to the end of the world, it's, it's still rough. And I warn you, it's very graphic, and you are going to be disturbed by what you read. But we're going to take a look at it in light of what it's trying to tell us about the end of the world. So you made your way back to Joshua 11. A lot of new faces out there, so let me tell you what's going on. By the end of this chapter, the fighting will be over. There will be peace in the land. The seven years ends at the end of this chapter. There's going to be some summary now of one big fight, but not the whole seven years. We're not going to know the whole story. We're just going to get a summation in chapter 11. Uh, we've known that the walls of Jericho have fallen. The city of Ai has been ambushed by and taken by Israel. And Israel has last week defeated the five-king coalition led by a picture of the Antichrist, the king of Jerusalem, whose title was Lord of Righteousness, which is actually uh, his counterpart will be uh, the Antichrist. And so we're taking a look at this now. Those three battles are over. And uh, from now on, there's just a, su a summary situation. So the southern kingdom has fallen and the northern kingdom remains and the northern kingdom has to fall even tonight. And so we read and reflect in light of the conquest of evil in the world and the conquest of evil in our own hearts because it is also a picture of the sanctification and the conquering of our own nasty hearts with its own kings who want to rule and resist the Lord Jesus. Verse 1 through 9. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, that the, the five-king coalition just were defeated, he heard this, and he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Akshpah, well, wherever, and to the northern kings... <laughs> Akshaf, there we go, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah south of Kinnereth, in the western foothills, and in Naphoth Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, 
Perizzites and the Jebusites in the hill country and all the other ites that there were, sorry, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, the exact line. Once again, last week, if you missed it, I had a whole list of all the parallels of the end of the world out of Revelation that we're seeing here tonight. But in the end, they all gather, as far as the eye can see, for Armageddon. And it's just the same exact line. All these kings, verse 5, joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. And that will be the same at the end of the world. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came upon, came against rather them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to greater Sidon. And Mizrafoth, Maim, and to the valley of Mizpah on the east, until no survivors were left, Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. Let's pause and let's talk about this, and then we'll move on and finish the chapter. So, final phase. The conquest will be over, as I said. Uh, Israel's opposition has intensified. You know, I see right away that God starts us with baby steps and he teaches us along our journey and things become more and more difficult because we've become more and more able. And he's prepared them. He's prepared them in first step, second step, third step. And they are ready for this, even though they are going to find themselves quite overwhelmed for sure. Um, and so another Antichrist kind of rises up. One, the five kings are gone, and then another guy rises up and send, sends out word, all the northern kings, let's get united against this Yahweh and these crazy people. We will fight against them, and we will prevail. But number one, if you're taking notes, the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Jesus was speaking to Peter and he told him, he said, who, who do men say that I am, Peter? And he says, well, some say this, and some say John the Baptist raised from the dead, and some say you're Elijah. And then, and then he said, no, 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 who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He said, very good. And upon this confession that I am God in a body, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of a city was an idiom for the power of the city. So Jesus is saying the power of death and of darkness and of evil shall not prevail against this truth and the church. People who are ecclesia called out. That's the word for church in the Greek. Called out of this world. And so number one, we are to obey God fearlessly. Obedience is most important when disobedience seems most enticing. When problems loom large, it is easy to dismiss what God expects from us, to make excuses why compliance is optional. We see in the passive that no matter the size of the we see in the passive that no matter the size of this, uh, I have the wrong sentence there. So what, what I'm trying to say is when things get heated up, we tend to fail to obey and we find reasons around what God wants us to do. And that's exactly what's happening here. Things have intensified. I mean, check this out. It's a beautiful picture of what the Bible teaches cover to cover, fearless obedience. You read it in the psalm. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. God wants us to obey him, 
no matter what, no matter what army rises up and wants us to back down, they're not going to do that. And so, first of all, we have this king of Hazor. It's about 10 miles, Hazor is, north of the Sea of Chinnereth. Chinnereth is Hebrew for harp because the Sea of Galilee is shaped like a harp. And so it, it's now the region where Jesus spent his lifetime now is becoming in Israel's territory. And so instead of saying, look, I need to go to Joshua and make peace like the Gibeonites did, he says, let's get together and try to fight a losing battle and fight against Yahweh and his people. You know, smart people see danger and take refuge, like I've been saying a lot lately, but fools keep going and suffer for it. That's Proverbs 27, verse 12. Just like the end of the world, Revelation 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, and stone, and wood, idols that cannot see, hear, or walk. He's heard about Yahweh He's heard about parting of the Red Sea. He's heard about the Gibeonites who made peace with Joshua. He knows that Yahweh receives those who who desert their former pagan Canaanites and come to him. And he receives them and he gives them mercy. But instead, he hardens his heart and he tries to fight God. So it's such a crazy thing to see in the scriptures So things are increasing for the Israelites. Now there are countless soldiers, a huge army, numerous as the sand of the sea. Can you imagine that? Some of the figures are 400,000, 500,000 fighting men, 20,000 chariots. And by the way, Israel has never dealt with any chariots and any war horses. So there's something new here. So not only are they outnumbered numerically, technologically as well. They have chariots and other weapons. It's a larger city. It's 200 acres instead of the 15 acres at Jericho. And uh, everywhere you look, on every hill and every valley, you see a soldier. And so uh, Israel's intimidation levels are rising and uh, kind of like the Afghanis on camels compared to our fighter jets and helicopters and bombers, uh, Israel is just sitting, they're sitting ducks. They're outnumbered, they're outgunned, they're helpless, they're vulnerable, but they have this going for them. Psalm 118, verse 7, the Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. The Lord is with me, and that makes all the difference. And so, verse 6 says, the Lord says to Joshua, Do not be afraid. By this time tomorrow, I will hand them over to you slain. I'll do the work. I'll do my part. You will do your part. And then it will be a done deal. So he wants them not to be afraid. And so we have to remember we have a choice when the armies of whatever come against us to give in, to surrender, to run, to hide, or to obey. Obedience is hard when we see good reason to disobey, distrust, and disappear. Now, Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, I love this part when Christian is approaching the palace beautiful and he's going down a little narrow passageway and he sees two ferocious lions and he's upset, of course. And Bunyan adds, the lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. And so the truth here is, is that even though an army come against Israel, and the 20,000 chariots and war horses, that their power was held back by God, and God was going to enhance the Israelites' power to, to have victory over that. But they don't necessarily see that, nor do you or I. When we are challenged, 
When the giants come out after us and whatever problem, God says, you know, Psalm 23, Lord, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. So he says, you know what? Uh, There's this army. They want to kill me. They're right there in my presence. And you're like, hey, relax. Let's spread a banqueting table. Your cup is overflowing because it's overflowing. It's like you're having a good time. You're relaxing. You're eating. You're dining. You do this in the presence of my enemies. Why? Because they're chained. They are chained. They can roar and you see them. But God says, I'm holding them back. He says, no weapon formed against you will prosper. It won't work. And if you die, he told his disciples, I love this when he said this. He said, they're going to persecute you from city to city. They're going to throw you into jail. They're going to interrogate you. And they're going to kill you. Next line. But don't worry. Not a hair on your head will perish. Okay, you just said they're going to chase us around. They're going to put us in jail. They're going to torment us, and they're going to kill us. But don't worry, not a hair on your head is going to perish. He's saying, if you end up perishing, God has allowed that, and they can only kill your body. They can't kill your soul. You should be more concerned about the one who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell. He says, that's the one you should be all concerned about, not somebody who could just kill your body. Because you're going to go on living forever and ever. You're going to have a martyr's crown. This is all going to work. So if it's your time to go, it's your time to go. And you'll go in glory and in peace. And in Romans 8, 28, God working all things together. So who's the big bad thing in your life? You know, a boss wants you to be unethical. Your friends ridicule you for your stand. Uh, your addiction wants to rule. Your sinful nature wants to be gratified. The great roar. You need to remember what Joshua remembered. The great roar, but the power is restrained. Let it roar. You don't always have to cave every time you get a little fearful. Oh, no. If I say this for the Lord, or if I obey God, that means this. And then you shrink back. You don't have to do that. Look what God did here. So God commands to hamstring the horses. Let's talk about this. Very upsetting. I was more upset to hear that than the bad guys getting killed. I'm sorry. The bad guys, you picture Al-Qaeda... The mobsters. I mean, these are, these are bad boys. They're getting their just desserts. But, you know, I love animals. This is hard coming from the mouth of the Lord. Hamstring the horses, number one. God is an animal lover. He made them on the fifth day. He likes them. He makes them and says, hmm, this is good. He cares for the animals. Psalm 147, verse 9. He gives the animals of the fields their food and to the young ravens that cry out to him. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. They don't even have jobs. Yet your heavenly father feeds them and takes care of them. O you of little faith. And he says, you know what? Not one sparrow falls to the ground. Not a sparrow without your father knowing about that little sparrow. Oh, God is not cruel. God made those animals. He loves those animals. He told the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 25, don't you even think of muzzling the ox when it's working in the fields for you? So what they would say is the ox gets hungry when it's treading out the corn. So it's going to eat some of the corn while he's working. So we're going to muzzle that beast so he can't eat our prophets. And God says, oh, no, I'm going to put it into the law. You do not muzzle that ox while he's treading out your corn. You unmuzzle him and let him eat. Because he cares about oxen. 
Jonah chapter 4, last line of the book of Jonah. Jonah's upset. Look, I told you. I told you I was going to preach, and they were going to cry out, and you were going to change your mind about the Ninevites, and now look, you've done it, and I'm angry enough to die. And he says, Jonah, there's 120,000 people down there. They don't know their right elbow from their left elbow. And then he says, plus a lot of cattle. I care about the cattle more than you know. One of the reasons he says, I don't want to overthrow Nineveh is because they had a lot of animals there too. He puts it in there. He doesn't just say there's 120,000 people. He says, how about the livestock? Because he doesn't want to destroy them. Although, he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, he says, they're valuable. But you are more valuable than they. And that's the problem here. When a war horse is coming after one of his children, he says, Disable the war horse because you are more valuable than the war horse. Disable that thing. It's coming full bore. I love dogs. I love dogs. But if a dog went after one of my kids, he'd lose more than his hind legs. (laughs) Love dogs, but I love the kid more than the dog. And that's the problem with unbelievers who live in an upside-down world who will look at a verse like that and go, look at that. And then we say, you know what? You know what's important here? (laughs) Is is that those people don't get stampeded (laughs) into the ground and get killed. Number two that people don't know about is that in Deuteronomy, it says they are forbidden to have horses or to breed them. Why? He says, because you'll go back to Egypt. He does not want those Israelites, those Jews, to have modern transportation, to leave the promised land, or to go back to Egypt. He has bordered them into a land that is bordered to the east by a river, to the south by a desert, to the west by the sea, and to the north by the mountains. And he's taken the Jews, and he's crossed over into that little box, and he's put them there, and he says, no horses, because I want you to stay there and produce for me the scriptures to be a light to save the world and become a people through whom I will bring the savior of the world. No horses. And so that's the second reason they get disabled. Because they, they hang around. First of all, they're dangerous at the moment. Number two is they hang around. They start to wander. Hey, now we can get out of our little 8,000 square mile Canaan, Israel. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. But Israel didn't listen to that. Disable the horses. The other thing is the war horse is a symbol of might and strength and military prowess. And Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And so the third reason is say, oh, no, don't look. Oh, now we've got horses. Now we're like them. Now we're strong. No, 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 no. Now you have the Lord. You don't need the horses. You don't need the chariots. And so that's the other reason as well. Disabling the horses has a spiritual application as well. We need to hamstring our horses. Because you've got some more horses that need to be hamstrung. Things that will take you away from the promised land. Things that will stampede you into the ground. You've got some things that need to be hamstrung. Guy told me, every day I go on the computer and every day I sin. Every single time I repent, I go back into my room, I go on the computer and sin every single day. I said, take your computer, open up your window, what's up below, 
He said, a parking lot. I said, perfect. <laughs> and throw the computer out the window. You don't understand. I said, no. You don't understand. Hamstring the horse. Are you crazy? Well, I really need it to communicate. Get a phone. <laughs> Piece of paper, a pen, and a stamp. It works. It takes a little bit longer. But you know what? You're not jeopardizing your place in God's kingdom. Hamstring the horse. Jesus said, you know, if it's your eye that's giving you trouble, hamstring it out. Is it your hand that's the problem? Chop, chop. If it's your foot, sever it off. Because he said in Matthew 18, wouldn't it be better to go to heaven with one eye than to be thrown into hell with two good eyes? So it doesn't matter if it's near and dear. It's a horse. It's a thing of beauty. Look at that thing. We could use it too. We could really use a horse around here. It's going to turn and trample you. You're going to get on that horse and it's going to take you to Babylon. Hamstring the horse, man. Is it a relationship? Is it a drug? Is it alcohol? Another guy tells me, every time I go past this liquor store, I just find myself drawing, dr driving right into the driveway. I'm getting out. I'm not even thinking. I'm like out of my body every single day. And the liquor store is on the way home to my house. And I said, there might be another way to get to your house. There really might be, you know? There might be like, go on MapQuest and find out. You know, you'll find another way. Ham. String the root. Stop. We just tolerate all of these horses. And God says, you know what? Near and dear stuff that takes you down the wrong path. Get rid of it. It's my best friend. Never mind. You knew what I was going to say, right? All right. Let's, I, we only have time because Pastor Ross just, I didn't want to say beat a dead horse. but I mean, it was... Wow, that's really bad. Let, let's just finish it. I will, I'll, I'll just speed read, make a couple comments, and then we're good to go. At that time, verse 10, Joshua turned back. It just gets bloody and bloody, folks, and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all of these kingdoms. Goodbye to him. Everyone in it they put to the sword and totally destroyed them, not sparing anything that breathed. And he burned up Hazor itself. Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Yet Israel did not burn any of the cities built on their mounds except Hazor, which Joshua burned. The Israelites carried off for themselves all the plunder and livestock of these cities, but all the people they put to the sword until they completely destroyed them, not sparing anyone that breathed. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took the entire land, the hill country, the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time, seven years total. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, who were smart and made a treaty with Joshua. Not one city made a treaty of peace with the, with the Israelites, who took them all in battle. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel, so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy, as the Lord has commanded Moses, had commanded Moses. At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, 
from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in the Israelite territory, only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. Now, a couple things here. Zero tolerance for evildoers. Zero mercy for those who don't want mercy. And God's uh, three things you see here, really just statements. God's completeness of judgment, Israel's full obedience, and the total sinfulness of the Canaanites. Just the thought on each one. Number one, God's completeness of judgment. You know what you see here? Not a thing that breathed slipped by. Here's what he's saying. He's saying nobody will get away with anything. That every person, every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm quoting Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. The point here is that when judgment day comes, not one person will escape. We will all stand before God. Christians before um, a reward ceremony kind of evaluation for our faithfulness and the uh, non-Christians and unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. You know, I love the story in Matthew 22. There's a story Jesus tells. A king throws a wedding reception for his son. He invites the whole place, the whole city. The royal officials invite them. And then the word says, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Judgment day. Then he says, the king went into the party, and he's mingling around. And he sees somebody in there without a wedding robe. And back in those days, everybody was invited, and nobody had, you know, nice clothes. And so the royal palace provided a covering. And you couldn't go to the party unless you put the covering on. And so the king goes into the party and he sees somebody in a T-shirt with sweat marks and some stains all over it, you know, and he's bellying up to the punch bowl, you know, and he's guzzling it down. He's like, "Uh, excuse me, friend, the king says, how did you get in here without a robe? And he says, take him and bind him hand and foot and throw him in the darkness outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, the gnashing of teeth, they're still angry. They are angry in hell, and if you let them out of hell, they're still angry and still won't repent. That's why they're still gnashing their teeth. It means to be angry and furious and seething. He says, throw him where he belongs. All God was asking, clothe yourself with Christ and cover over all of that stuff. And how you get a robe is you just ask for one. The prodigal son, he's just coming home. He goes, well, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He says, stop. Just stop. Bring the robe. Cover him up in the righteousness of heaven. That's not so hard. It's not so hard. But everybody, every single soul, from Adam and Eve, to, from Cain to the last breath, that was birthed, will stand before their maker. Not one will escape. The second thing is just Israel, Israel really needs to obey. It may be a done deal, but you have work to do. And the last thing is that uh, God wants to make sure that the wicked get what the wicked deserve. And here's the part that really kind of tweaked me. It was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might completely destroy them, totally exterminating them without mercy. In the same way, closing remarks, in the same way that God foreknew us and elected us, in the same way 
he knew about them and said, I'm going to make sure you have what your heart desires. Now, he does that after they keep persisting and persisting and persisting. And he says, I will harden your heart because you want it hardened. In other words, they're fighting and he's saying, I already won this a long time ago because I gave you over to what your heart longed for. Now, surely if he ever did that to any of us, we'd all be in trouble, right? So he does that when he knows this person never wanted it, never will want it, it's over. So he hardens them for the purpose that they have chosen. And nobody's going to be able to say, well, you know, on that day, you hardened me. Who can resist your will? Paul says in Romans chapter 9, uh-uh, it's not going to work that way. Because he only hardens those who wish to be hardened. He had a casting call in Egypt. He says, out to Egypt. He says, hey, I need a pharaoh. I need a pharaoh that with a wicked heart. I need a bad guy. And pharaoh goes, oh, I'll do it. <laughs> so God says, okay, great, thank you. Boom. And Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then in the next verse, it says, and then the Lord hardened his heart. And then you hear, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then in the next verse, you hear, and the Lord hardened his heart. Equal amount of times Pharaoh hardens his heart that you will read that God hardens his heart. God only hardens the heart that wishes to resist and to rebel. And he says, you know what? You play crooked with me. I act shrewdly with you. And so I will beat you bad guys at the end of the world at your own game. I already sealed your fate and gave you what your heart desired. And that was wickedness and rebellion and darkness. And he will say on that great day, thy will be done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for helping us through the conquest. I know... uh, It was a long one tonight, but we're done with the conquest and we're moving forward. And I thank you for the patience of your people who want to study and know your word, especially about end times. That is, it just seems we're living right on the edge of these very things coming to pass. So make us ready and prepare our hearts. Thank you for your great love. And most importantly, the blood of Jesus that shields us from all harm and makes us your dearly loved children. Thank you for these great and precious promises in Jesus' name. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.